from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For many of the tens of thousands converged in Washington, D.C. for the Poor People's Campaign Moral March on Washington, the key demand was to shift billions spent on war and overseas to instead be spent on urgent needs here at home. There's so much going out and not enough staying here. You know, like look at Ukraine. It's just so much. We can find money for all of those different things. But when it comes to the issues that we have here at home, the homelessness and jobs and housing, everybody is passing the buck. And after the fifth televised hearing of the House January 6th Commission, I discussed with our media critic John Jeter the coverage and the impact of the hearings. So I find that the theater of it troubling, I guess I should say. But at the same time, I do believe that serious crimes and misdemeanors were committed on January 6th. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And we are in the swirl of many local, national, and international headlines this week. Well, this week, the far-right U.S. Supreme Court voted 6-3 to three to strike down a key New York State gun control law restricting concealed carry of firearms in public. While the NRA applauded the ruling and the stocks of weapons manufacturers jumped on Wall Street, Gun safety advocates sounded the alarm that all attempts at common sense gun restrictions are now in jeopardy. Christina Harvey, executive director of Stand Up America, said, quote, today, the Supreme Court made it clear that it cares more about protecting the interests of the gun lobby than American lives. This isn't by accident. The lawmakers who confirmed the court's ultra conservative majority were bought and paid for by the NRA. This decision achieves one of their ultimate goals, bringing more guns into public spaces with no consideration for human life, end quote. The Supreme Court decision loosening gun restrictions was made on the same day that the Senate patted itself on the back for passing a very watered down bipartisan gun safety bill called the Safer Communities Act that does not restrict or ban assault style weapons of war in any way or limit high-capacity magazines or so-called exploding bullets designed to kill large game. It would strengthen background checks and create incentives for so-called red flag laws to keep guns away from people who might harm themselves or others. Though woefully inadequate, it is being hailed as the best gun safety legislation passed by Congress in decades, especially after the murder of 19 fourth graders and their teachers in Uvalde, Texas. Nearly absent from the discussion is the murder of 10 mostly elderly African-Americans at a Buffalo grocery store in May. This decision on guns was made on the same day that the court decided in another case, Vega versus Teca, that people cannot sue an officer for not informing them of their right to remain silent and other protections under the Miranda statute. The ruling comes two weeks after another Supreme Court 6-3 decision against a man who wanted to sue a U.S. border agent for brutality. The decisions in these three human rights cases, combined with a leaked Supreme Court opinion draft 
indicating that the high court will vote to overturn Roe v. Wade and federal abortion rights is strengthening calls to expand the Supreme Court to dampen the power of the current 6-3 extreme right majority. But with Democrats unable to pass much of any of its agenda, maybe only another mass movement in the streets, as in 2020, after the murder of George Floyd will prove to judges and to lawmakers that our lives matter. During the fourth and fifth hearings held this week by the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, new details were revealed about the attempt of Trump and his allies to coerce both state officials and officials at the Department of Justice into overturning the 2020 election. On Thursday, dramatic testimony was given by former acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen about the days and hours leading up to the attack when officials said Trump grew increasingly determined to replace Rosen with another DOJ attorney, Jeffrey Clark, who would endorse Trump's conspiracy theories that the election was stolen from him. Rosen described a meeting three days before January 6th when Trump arrived already referring to Clark as the acting head of the Department of Justice, replacing Rosen. The president turned to me and he said, well, one thing we know is you, Rosen, you aren't going to do anything. You don't even uh, agree with the, the, the claims of election fraud. And this other guy at least might do something. And then I said, well, Mr. President, you're right that I'm not going to allow the Justice Department to do anything to try to overturn the election. That's true. But the reason for that is because that's what's consistent with the facts and the law. and That's what's uh, required under the Constitution. So that's the right answer and a good thing for the country. And therefore, I submit it's the right thing for you, Mr. President. And that kicked off uh, another two hours of discussion in which everyone in the room was in one way or another making different points, but uh, supportive of my approach for the Justice Department and critical uh, of Mr. Clark. These dramatic developments at the Supreme Court and during the House hearings occurred days after tens of thousands of people converged for the Poor People's Campaign Moral March on Washington. The march, planned for more than a year and delayed because of the pandemic, was held after the campaign has been active in advocating for workers at Amazon, for coal miners, and for teachers, and for human needs such as universal health care and guaranteed and expanded voting rights at the federal level. Though he has seen many of these reforms defeated by the Republican Senate filibuster, the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the campaign, urged the crowd to keep advocating for change. We must say with our bodies, with our voices, with our organizing, with our preaching, with our standing, even with our suffering and our sacrifices, that we won't be silent or unseen or unheard anymore. As long as there are 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country, and we know it doesn't have to be this way, we won't be silent anymore. As long as there are 87 million people who are uninsured or underinsured, and everybody in the Congress gets free health insurance while they vote against us to have the same thing, we won't be silent anymore. As long as caving 
to the lobbying of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 49 Republicans and two Democrats refused to vote fairly and denied 32 million people just last year a $15 an hour minimum living wage. We won't be silent anymore. As long as we know this nation will never really deal with inflation and recession until she does right by the poor and low wealth of this country. As long as we have the hypocrites and the audacity to call people essential workers during the pandemic and then treat them like they're expendable when it comes to health care and wages. We'll discuss more about the Poor People's Campaign later in the show with John Jeter, our media critic, and leaked to the June 18th speech by Barber and the full day's program on our website, onthegroundshow.org. And finally, in culture and media, D.C. social justice organizations are rallying in support of Long Live Go-Go and Mochella, a music and social justice movement that is using D.C. music to raise awareness of issues such as police brutality and gentrification. In the hours after a Juneteenth celebration sponsored by Long Live Go-Go at the 14th and U Corridor in Northwest D.C., a 15-year-old boy, identified as Chase Poole by the Washington Post, was shot and killed, and at least four others were shot and wounded. Mayor Miro Bowser, who was just re-elected to her third term, and D.C.'s police chief condemned the event for being unpermitted. But organizations such as D.C. Jobs of Justice, which supports Long Live Go-Go, said that there is a double standard about permits being required for First Amendment activities. They said in a statement, quote, it is important for us to name that events that are seen as white led do not experience the same level of scrutiny and police presence when they engage in First Amendment protests as those organized by leaders who are black, indigenous and people of color. We continue to stand with the organizers of Long Live Go-Go and, ur- and urge others to read their statement. We urge for a transparent and community oriented approach to what makes us safe. We reject the politicization of this tragedy and in the call for more policing. And we believe that creating joy, culture and community in public spaces is part of how we affect the structural change that uplifts all Washingtonians, end quote. And while we were broadcasting, the Supreme Court announced that they have overturned the Roe v. Wade decision as expected and which has effectively uh, overturned the right of a woman to have an abortion at the federal level, a federal right, national right to an abortion. And they said they were returning this right to the states. And we're definitely going to be out on the ground uh, covering what happens in front of the Supreme Court or here in D.C. in the coming weeks. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. I got to talk. I got to tell what I feel. I got to talk about my life as I see it. Biggie.
All right, I'm out here at the Poor People's Campaign Moral March, and I have Leo Flores from Copink. Uh, so, Leo, tell me about the intersection between the Poor People's Campaign and the work of Copink. Right. Well, one of the five pillars of the Poor People's Campaign is militarism and stopping militarism. And at Code Pink, you know, we're very concerned with the fact that the Pentagon budget is now $847 billion. And by the time it's all said and done, with when you add on the nuclear stuff, it's going to be over a trillion dollars a year. That's an insane amount of money considering we have 140 million poor people in this country, poor and working class people. And so the Poor People's Campaign is an amazing movement because it brings in so many different issues. It brings in militarism, racism, climate, poverty of course and so it's exciting for us to be part of it and I think really everybody should try to join because this is the sort of movement that can bring so many of our struggles together yeah. right now with them all of social movements in the US are pretty uh, what's the word siloed siloed exactly and yeah. so this is something that can bring us all together you know I went to a press conference this week uh, it was Black Alliance for Peace and another group a human rights group out of Philadelphia and um, I kind of brought that up because I was about the idea of a popular front that maybe you don't agree on all issues within that group. But anyway, I mean, I think that there's some ways to go just in terms of people joining together. So what are what are some of the ways that you think Coping can, I don't know, just bring that message to this larger group? Well, I mean, I I totally agree with you on this issue of a popular front, right? I'm from Venezuela, and then in Venezuela, one of the things that really characterizes the left over the past 23 years has been this issue of unity. And there is a lot of ideological diversity in Venezuela, but it's been the fact that we're united. That's what has allowed us to survive all these onslaughts from the empire. So this issue of unity is so key. And in terms of what Code Bank can offer to the Poor People's Campaign, drawing those connections directly to, to how the Pentagon budget affects poor people, affects our lack of water, how the U.S. military in particular pollutes, right? It pollutes our air, it pollutes our water. We saw in Hawaii so many chemicals in our rivers that are directly traced to the military. So drawing those connections to the environment, drawing those connections to, to poverty, I think that's something we can really help with at Code Pink. Yeah. Thank you, Leo. My name is Adrian Patterson. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I came out because I believe in social justice. I believe in this campaign. I believe that the system is rigged and it's all for, for them and not for the masses. That's why I'm here. Um, I'm a veteran of the military. I served 27 years. And sometimes I question how this country feels about me as a true American. Am I only American when it suits them? Because I showed up Iraq, Afghanistan for my country. And now that I need them to show up for me, it's like they've done a disappearing act. So my spirit is conflicted a lot. So I'm here because I believe in strength in numbers. And I believe that we need to be heard. Right. Yes. What are some of the ways that you feel that the system is missing in action, basically, when it comes to what you need and what... Huh. And I guess, some, what are some of the things happening in Baltimore that we should know about? Well, we need better leadership because the crime is out of control completely. I believe that voters' rights is extremely important. I believe that we need more housing because there's a lot of homelessness going on and more jobs, more jobs. And the education for our children, it's, um, it's almost like they've shoved that on the side. Right, yeah, right. so that's extremely important. Those are my most, 
most important uh, things that I'm saying anymore. You know, as a veteran, I want to know how you feel about the funding for the military. I just spoke to someone from Code Pink, and they were talking about how they want to shift the trillion dollars a year that we're spending on the military to human needs for what we need in this country. I, I believe that. I believe that. There's so much going out and not enough staying here. Right. You know, like look at Ukraine. It's just so much. We can find money for all of those different things. Right. But when it comes to the issues that we have here at home, the homelessness and jobs and housing, everybody is passing the buck. You know, right. nobody wants to be accountable. Nobody wants to be held responsible. Right, right, right. So, yeah, that's how I feel. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Okay, I'm out here at the Poor People's Campaign March, and I'm talking to people about why they came out today. So tell me your name and where you're from and why you came out. I'm Dylan Sheeran. I'm from Delaware, uh, Dover. Um, and I came out here today to show solidarity with workers all over the country to oppose militarism and racism. Yeah. And what are some of the issues that are concerning people in Dover? Well, militarism especially. The Air Force Base is where a lot of people get their work. It's where, frankly, the bodies come in from overseas. It's point that hurts a lot of families over there. So, and, you know, I keep thinking when I hear the budget for the military and the def so-called defense go up and up and up every year, and then also so many, so many of our cities, the budgets for police go up and up and up. I keep thinking that in terms of a lot of working people trying to find a job, it seems like that's like the only, that's the easiest job for people to find or it seems like more and more people are pushed into jobs either in militarism or police. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, people see that as the only way to get a pension, the only way to get health care. Uh, to risk your life for uh, some security at the end of it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was great to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. My name is Lovely Sardin. I'm from Iman, Inner City Muslim Action Network. I came out today because my beautiful sister, yes, it's Chicago, Anam invited us so we can try to be a part of the change for the Poor People's Campaign. Oh, okay. So I see a lot of folks with the, um, the um, so are you from? We're Muslims. Oh, awesome. Okay. And so so tell me about the, the things that you're concerned about that the Poor People's Campaign is. Everything. Okay. Yeah. Everything oh. matters. Okay. And you see half of us are Palestinian, so that's very important. We're just here trying to fight for change and for better equality for everyone. I know the Muslim that ban, you know, the immigrants' uh, tell me, problems tell me, tell and all of that. Tell me your name. My name is Anam Al-Jabali. I'm uh, Palestinian by birth, and we live in Illinois. And I'm a community activist, so I've been involved with different organizations in small ways, but I've added to their voice where it mattered. I'm a very good advocate, and I have um, helped them, you know, one more person, one more voice to matter to the legislation in Springfield and nationally. All right. So I know that here in D.C., we've actually covered a lot about the recent murder of Shireen Abu Akhle. Yes. And, uh, you know, even before her, yes. another man. Correction, the assassination. Right the, um, yeah. 
deliberate assassination of a person that works for the press. Right. And she was clearly wearing a vest with, with the media and the helmet. And they deliberately killed him. Oh, yes. And she is an American citizen. And yet this government, this uh, administration did nothing to demand some kind of consequences or apologies or statements. They didn't do any statements. We have yet to see a powerful statement from President Biden on this issue. We are mad and angry that a member of our people and who is also an American citizen, who is a member of the press, one more member of the press being killed by Israel, okay? Our people do matter. We are ordinary human beings and we have been living under occupation for 74 years. Where's the justice? When is it coming? We want to do undo what uh, Trump did and other presidents and other legislation in Congress and from the United Nations. The United Nations says something, everybody complies except Israel. When it comes to Israel, Israel is controlling every voice. It's, you know, def it's covering the voices of reason, the, the voices of a activists. They're covering the voices of George Galloway, Medea Benjamin, Cynthia McKinney, everyone that says this is unfair, that stands up for a free Palestine, you know? So what, what would you like, uh, are, are these issues going to be addressed today on the stage, you think? And what would you like to be accomplished? assassination unfortunately but yes uh, I met with the group over here that are standing for uh, want the freedom of uh, the brother from uh, El Salvador and they know and they gave me a hug and they say they they feel with us as Palestinians they say they recognize the injustices the occupation the oppression right all of these acts of uh, human rights abuses right. see the people know right but the government is not doing anything. The president is being controlled. Everybody is being controlled by APEC. Just as the government and everybody is being controlled overwhelmingly on gun violence by, uh, by the NRA. Okay? Why are the lobbyists controlling the members of Congress that are supposed to be representing us and serving us? If they're not doing a good job, we will make the changes. And if they are doing a good job now, we want them to do a better job tomorrow. Okay. Okay? All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Those were voices of some of the tens of thousands who attended the Poor People's Campaign Moral March on Washington, June 18th, 2022 in Washington, D.C. I'm Mr. Averam for On the Ground. Stay with us.
on the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Iver. i'm here with this month's expanded exploration of media and culture and i'm joined by our media critic john jeter former foreign bureau chief of the washington post two-time pulitzer finalist and author of two books including flat broke in the free market how Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thrilled to be here, Esther. So, John, on Thursday, I watched the fifth hearing of the January 6th Commission investigating what the committee has said was an attempted coup by Donald J. Trump. And Thursday's testimony by the Department of Justice officials, including former acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, was the closest to what you would call the deep state, the permanent state, including the FBI, which, by the way, is not being investigated in terms of its poor preparation for what they knew in advance of January 6th. And they knew in advance it could be a violent mob descending on D.C. And quite frankly, the failure of this commission to even look at the failures of law enforcement is probably the biggest flaw and the fact seized on most often by it's left critics. Yet still, I have to admit, I found a lot of the hearing uh, very compelling in terms of giving details about what happened in the hours leading up to January 6th. You know, Trump making his final attempts to use the Department of Justice to overturn the election or give more legitimacy to the attempt he knew would be made through Republican lawmakers, through intimidation, through violence, and he hoped by Mike Pence on January 6th. So I wanted to use that intro to talk to you about your impression of the hearing so far, to give me your take on what seems to be a split uh, on the left when it comes to January 6th. And, you know, I know you've had your own experiences, especially online with people having very different attitudes toward January 6th. Yeah, I don't follow it closely, but I, I tend to read the reportage, you know, the day after, and I, I watch a few YouTube clips here and there. And, you know, I'm fairly ambivalent about January 6th and these hearings. I certainly would have no problem with Donald Trump being frog marched out of uh, his luxurious home, uh, wherever he is these days, and into some supermax facility. I do think that what happened on January 6th was an attempt at sedition, which is a felony and a very serious one at that. Having said that, I, I do find this to be a very cynical act on, the, on behalf of the Democrats trying to basically shore up their 
chances in the midterm elections, trying to sort of deliver something. And I don't even think they'll be able to do that. I think that this will ultimately backfire because they won't be able to deliver Donald Trump. And that might turn out uh, in a funny way to be a good thing because it might keep the Republicans from going after Joe Biden, who I think might have just as uh, serious a record in terms of his dealings in Ukraine while he was vice president and that of his son, Hunter Biden. So, you know, I find the, the theater of it troubling, I guess I should say. But at the same time, I do believe that serious crimes and misdemeanors were committed on January 6th. So I'm of two minds. You know, when we talk about the coverage of it, you know, I have to mention that I saw Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who broke the story of Watergate for our former employer, talking about the hearings. And but during the Watergate scandal in the 1970s, there was more unanimity in the news media and in Congress about the fact that a crime had possibly been committed by the then president, Richard Nixon. And today, despite the mountains of evidence about Trump's activity, you know, what he was engaged in in the months leading up to January 6th and the attack on the Capitol, there's a sizable block of the population turning their heads away from this Democrat-led committee. And I'm wondering, is this partly because of the months and years that we had to endure the whole Russiagate hoax and so many people just being turned off by what you call theater, by the theater of it, and they can't separate out this theater from the actual facts and the acts committed leading up to January 6th. I have a hard time looking at the TV and seeing Adam Schiff sitting up there because I know I remember him presiding over Russiagate and and I know how he, for example, held back the testimony of the organization CrowdStrike that testified that they found no evidence that the DNC computers had been hacked or been broken into here in, you know, here in the States, less more by Russia, you know, thousands of miles away. Right. So the fact that that he's on the committee, that, you know, you have this kind of memory of those years that we endured Russiagate, I think that it just it it brings to mind to people that, okay, this is the same thing all over again. And they can't even remember back the months leading up to the election, how our mailboxes were taken out of our neighborhoods, how they were trying to keep people from voting remotely during a pandemic, how there was this voter suppression, how, you know, all these things that that Trump did through DeJoy, the postmaster, through just Voter intimidation, for example, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. what's your thought? I, I just, I just, you know, and this is something I know that we we sort of, you know, we 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 beat that dead horse over and over again. I know, but you know, this is just another reflection of the media not being very close to the people. It's like that that famous saying by the photographer uh, Robert Kappa: that "If your photographs aren't good enough, you're not close enough." Well, if your news stories aren't good enough, it's because you're not close enough, and so the media really has almost no connection to the American people. And so you mentioned Watergate. That's really a very good example. You know, Watergate was really, you know, a third grade burglary meant to damage the reputation of of, uh, Richard Nixon's uh, political opponents. Uh, But at the same time, COINTELPRO was going full bore. The FBI was basically organizing assassination plots in Los Angeles, 
against Bunchy Carter and other people in the Black Panthers, Fred Hampton and so on and so on. I think it was 36 over a period of three, the first three years that Richard Nixon was in office. And so people, I think, even those who are not necessarily uh, really up on these on these things aren't really, you know, they're, they're just trying to stay afloat. They still have a sense, I think, that they're being propagandized and that the media isn't really scratching where they itch. And so this is just another in a very long line of examples of that. You know, it, it reminds me, I'll say this and I'll, I'll let it drop. It reminds me very much of the revelation I had several years ago about the death of Anwar Sadat, which, uh, uh, Egypt's former uh, prime minister, I think, when I was a sophomore in high school. I think we took the day off and everybody was sort of saddened by Anwar Sadat. I didn't really know who he was. And I found out years later from an Egyptian that Egyptians didn't like him at all that those who weren't cheering certainly weren't mourning, uh, that he wasn't a popular person in Egypt. And so, again, it's just sort of the media not being very much in touch with. They reflect the values of the elites and the bourgeoisie across the world and not that of everyday people. Wow. And I want to hold that thought about the media not being close to the people because I want to talk to you about the coverage of the Poor People's Campaign. We definitely want to be close to the people we on the show, as you heard earlier in the in this very show, uh, try to be on the ground uh, talking to everyday people, voices of people who you don't hear on corporate media, corporate media, very content to talk to talking heads and this politician and that pundit and this lawyer and that figurehead and this celebrity and that celebrity or whatever. And it's important to know how working people from around the country uh, feel about what is happening in our lives and the explosion of homelessness in our cities and the explosion of crime and how proud we are of all the young people standing up and creating their own unions and fighting back for decent wages. All the things that we talk about on the show and the fact that tens of thousands of people gathered here in Washington, D.C., on June 18th, and it was narrowly covered. I even looked on C-SPAN because they used to cover major events in Washington, but I couldn't even find it. If someone had heard it there or saw it there, let me know. But the fact that there was this erasure, even if you don't agree with everything in the Poor People's Campaign, you know, just the fact that we have this blackout of a poor people's movement is just so, you know, it's noteworthy. And we have to take note of when our voices are erased. Now, John, you know, speaking of, you know, the media not being close to the people, most of the show is dedicated to the Poor People's Campaign and talking to people out at the march on June 18th. And there were tens of thousands of people there. And I guess my question is in like maybe two or three parts, because I know we don't have a lot of time. But the fact that when you compare the moral authority of the Poor People's Campaign, the fact that they are fighting for the rights and the the ability of poor and low-wage people in this country, which constitutes about half the population, the ability for, for people to live. And that when you look at the poor coverage that the march received, I think of it as so different from what happened, you know, in 1963, right? And, or so many of the marches that have happened in the past. The discourse has changed. It's much worse now. It's never been perfect. It's never been sort of a full sort of discussion, but now it's been reduced to almost a series of sound bites, Ukraine good, Russia bad, just all these sort of reductive kinds of, 
not even they're not even talking points really. They're just kind of slogans. And and so you know the the language has been devalued, and our thoughts have been devalued. And we don't really have we don't really come up with the solutions to our problems. And at the same time, we just don't have access to these platforms where we can actually express our discontent. And so it's just kind of a ticking time bomb. And we're just waiting for, if I can mix metaphors, we're waiting for the other shoot drop, right? Like it, it's just sort of it, nothing good can come from this. And that's what I think the Poor People's March and the lack of coverage, you know, and there wasn't much coverage for uh, Martin Luther King's March on Washington in 1963 either, but it was a different discourse. It was a different level of engagement. And now it's just sort of a bunch of people talking to each other and not to talking to themselves and not to each other. You know, speaking of discourse, so we have to mention, because you're talking about leadership, we have to be sure to mention the fact that just like there's dissension over the meaning of the January 6th hearings, January 6th itself, there's also a split over the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, the Reverend William Barber, who we've covered extensively on the show, we have a lot of respect for in terms of his leadership. He had, he made a very controversial, I get email, I think, at the end of April, where he called for support of Ukraine and saying that the support of Ukraine was a moral imperative. And it certainly created a firestorm within the left and the black left in particular. I attended a press conference last week and I played a piece of it in last week's show where Ajamu Baraka and the the Poor People's Human Rights Campaign out of Philadelphia was uh, basically criticizing the the stance from Barbara and really pointed to it in their uh, determination to create a Poor People's Army that will be uh, having a boot camp in August out uh, near Philadelphia and really wanted to create a distinction for themselves in terms of their a belief that they are in the tradition of King in his last year, being against war and understanding the connection between uh, war and militarism in this country and the, the plight of the poor, you know, in terms of every dollar. And in our, our case, big trillions of dollars, billions of dollars, a trillion a year going toward war, meaning that money is not going toward the poor and just wanting to point that out. And I tried to talk about popular front and, you know, different types of things and not wanting to see the splits on the left, but those splits are there. A barber's position on Ukraine is just baffling. I don't know why he would urge people, uh, people who believe in him and rightfully so. I think he's a man to be respected, but this is just baffling why he would urge people to support what is the capital of Nazism in the world today. And, you know, and there's, of course, there's a lot more context to it than that. But now, you know, it's one thing if you say, well, you know, we should support peace and that's, that's fine, right? But the idea that uh, somehow we have a horse in this fight and that it's Ukraine is, is absolutely absurd. And I think it's something that Barbara at some point, if he wants to sort of remain credible, is gonna have to address. But even deeper than that, again, I think it just reflects that split between, uh, you know, the, the talented 10th as W.E.B. Du Bois once called them, and the rest of us, right? It's just, uh, I don't think you will find, I haven't seen any polls, but I don't really need any. I don't think you will find very widespread support for Ukraine in the military conflict with Russia. Oh. <laughs> well, you you probably didn't hear the folks I interviewed out at the march who were there to support the Poor People's Campaign, but everybody I spoke to pretty much talked about, especially the Black folks like 
with labor groups. They said, you know, we're out here for fair wages and we see all this money going to Ukraine. And, you know, we're talking about homelessness. We're talking about fair wages. We're talking about health care here in this country. Exactly. So anyway, you. you, and, you and, and by the way, Russia has a universal health care system. Nobody exactly. in Russia dies because they like health care. So, yeah, right. it's, it's, that's not our fight. Yeah. So, well, well, we have to mention, I think we mentioned before the show, you know, he's not alone in championing Ukraine. You know, we have people on the so-called left, you know, other people on the black left, you know, making these same types of claims. And and here in D.C., what a disgrace that we have uh, Representative Gregory Meeks of New York uh, being a sponsor of this legislation that would sanction African countries, target African countries if they weren't going along with the U.S. effort to isolate Russia and cut themselves off from Russia, one of the the world's largest grain producers. So I don't even know the word. There's just, (laughs) we, you know, there's a lot of people. I know a word, but I can't use it here. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of people that we need to, who we need to address about these issues. We mentioned uh, the labor organizer, Bill Fletcher, has also written a letter in support of Ukraine and urging others in the labor movement and in the Black community to support Ukraine in this conflict. I, you know, I just think it's no good is going to come from this. And I think it, in some ways it's good, though, because I think what we have really is a political and economic catastrophe bearing down in the United States and the world, right? This is the culmination of, you know, really a 50-year plan by the elites to reorganize the economy and political power, and specifically the last 15 years where the United States has basically just been printing money as opposed to trying to bolster a functional economy. And so we're, you know, we're, we're coming to that denouement, as they would say, I guess, in France. And maybe it's good to see who's on our side and who's not, because anyone who's talking about, you know, supporting Ukraine instead of Medicare for all, uh, student debt relief, the things that would actually revive our own uh, consumer economy here and hopefully re-energize our politics. Or support uh, Ethiopia really, and Yemen. Right, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, yes. Instead, the right? The, or, yeah, ain't nothing it, changed with the Palestinians, yeah. Why, why we got to support Ukraine? We got plenty of people who who would cut them and who beat them to the line, you know? To the, to the oh, problem. right, right. And in the Crazy. meantime, there's, uh, speaking of legislation, I believe there was a, a court decision just this week to uphold the outlawing boycotts. So, yes, you know, yes. this, and this in is Arkansas, go- I believe, yeah, this is going to go to the Supreme Court. I mean, you think yeah. about think back on something like the Poor People's Campaign, which was like, say, say the end point of what King's career uh, that started with a bus boycott. Right. Right. So when you really think about that trajectory, you know, we wanted to bend toward justice. But anyway, we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. Thank you. 
is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everm in conversation with john jeter our media critic for this month's extended culture and media segment and john uh, nowhere uh, rapidly running out of time and I, I want us to get to some of our press issues when we last spoke i don't know uh we if we mentioned that Three of the journalists that we've featured on our show have been targeted by big tech or, or the government in so many different ways. So, uh, you know, we spoke to Ben Norton. Both you and I spoke to him. He was denounced in The New York Times because he dared to give interviews with like with China and media and, you know, just talk about the impacts of U.S. empire. You know, he's not afraid to use that language to really describe what the U.S. does around the world. There was Joe Lawyer from Consortium News. They've been targeted by uh, this group called NewsGuard. So we, we've gotten rid of this so-called disinformation board that, the, mm-hmm. that Biden tried to start. But there's still this, something called NewsGuard, which is some type of software on a lot of Microsoft computers. And it comes up uh, in, in some library searches. But anyway, they try to label Consortium News as uh, give it a red flag as not being you know trustworthy news or something like that. Just because Consortium News tells the truth about Ukraine, right, exactly. Nazi influence, right. and also the fact that that there was a U.S. back coup in Ukraine in 2014, which has helped bring this current regime into power that is being used in this proxy war against Russia. So uh, our friends at the Gray Zone, Aaron Maté has been targeted by The Guardian in the U.K. because of his truthful reporting about Syria and the fact that, you know, the U.S. is still there occupying one third of the country, by some reports, stealing grain and oil from the com- country, yes, yes. Um, our support for what was actually Al Qaeda in Syria. Right. So, I mean, here, right at Pacifica, I've been embroiled in a <laughs> kind of an email debate with people who um, did not want to basically acknowledge the fact that a, another reporter who actually did very good work in, in Syria, Eva Bartlett, and uh, she's a Canadian independent yeah, journalist. I, know I think she's yeah. based in uh, in Moscow now and where she says she feels safe <laughs> because she's been uh, targeted by this Ukrainian backed website, ironically called Peacemaker. Wow. And they she's calling it basically being put on a death list or a hit list. And this I did not know that That's this crazy. web this website is lists people as enemy of Ukraine. And, and, you know, given the fact that, you know, you've had so many journalists targeted and detained, 
um, in prison and even killed in Ukraine, you know, this is very serious business. But you had a number of people uh, on this email exchange basically saying, oh, this is just Russia propaganda. And so, you know, we're just living in very dangerous times for uh, journalists, independent journalists. Uh, and of course, you know, we can't get off the call without mentioning the the UK okaying the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States. The founder and editor of WikiLeaks, former editor, uh, founding editor of WikiLeaks, who broke so many stories used by corporate media here. They were fine to use his stories about Iraq and the New York Times, even The Guardian, who's thrown him under the bus now, right? So his yeah. stories were used all over the world. Uh, but when he leaked stories about the CIA, about the Clinton campaign, and then became fair game to go after him for the war crimes of the U.S. that he mm. revealed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is the first time a publisher has been targeted by the so-called U.S. Espionage Act. But also, uh, it's the first time a journalist has been targeted in this way and a publisher has been right. targeted in this way. And he's not even a citizen of the United States. That's right. That's yeah. Right. So uh, I'll give you the last word. Uh, we're way over time. We're running out of time. But I want to give you the last word before we ask people to support us one more time in our effort to raise money for Pacifica. Well, I, I can't add much to what you said, but I'll just say very quickly, you know, that people should think very seriously. I consider Julian Assange and Mumia Abu-Jamal to be the best living journalists in, in the English language. Why are they both locked up? Right? I, I just think that's the one thing that, you know, you should it really cuts to the chase. Why are the two best journalists in the English language both locked up, both facing uh, basically the threat of death? All right. Well, uh, I've been speaking to our media critic, John Jeter, former foreign bureau chief of the Washington Post and and great friend of the show. Thank you, John. Thank you, Esther. And John Jeter will have the last word on today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Of course, you can also let us know you like On the Ground on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Where, or I post links to the show on my Instagram page, which is E-S-T-H-E-R underscore Averum, I-V-E-R-E-M. Our podcast On the Ground with Esther Averum is on all your podcast platforms. The new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Kick in the Door, Instrumental, The Notorious B.I.G. by DJ Premier, Another Star by Cedar Walton, Free by Stevie Wonder, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Rivera. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.